You can turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We spent three weeks in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. We were learning about the importance of unity, and we were learning about the importance of humility, uh, and therefore we were looking at the example of Christ. And after talking about the goodness of Christ, his model of humility, his obedience that led him all the way to die on a cross for our sins, and his glorification, uh, Paul gets to verse 12 and 13. And after talking a lot about Christ, he returns to a topic um, that he already opened up in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, which really sets the bar for the rest of the letter. And he says these uh, things in these two verses. This is Paul in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, where Paul says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. Now, just a couple minutes ago, I asked you a survey question. And the question was, what's the hardest thing you've ever had to do? Now, during our song, I didn't have time, obviously, to go through your answers. um, But I could guess probably some of the things that might have come to your mind or some of the things you may have written down. Maybe you wrote down a test. I know many of you guys are serious about doing your homework and serious about your futures. And I'm sure there's an exam that was really serious that you spent a lot of time on. And not just the work, but the anxiety that you had to fight to get that done um, could have been the hardest thing you thought of. Maybe you had a friend and things weren't going well with the friend, maybe because of them or maybe because there were spiritual things going on and you had to create boundaries I remember in college by experience that creating boundaries with friendships can be an incredibly difficult thing. Maybe, as I mentioned, it's saying goodbye to someone. Uh, Maybe it was them moving, or maybe it was uh, someone who actually passed away. And saying goodbye to uh, their friendship was a difficult thing, or goodbye to their place in your life if it was a family member was a difficult thing. Maybe it was apologizing for something. I found that admitting a mistake, especially if it was a big mistake, uh, can often feel incredibly shameful, and you need a lot of courage to do that. Maybe apologizing is one of the hardest things you've ever had to do. But I think as Christians, there's one thing that many of us may have thought of, which is changing. Changing, becoming holy, trying to live a more godly life. I think many of us may have thought that that is the most difficult thing we've ever had to do. Maybe putting off a certain sin or maybe putting on a certain attitude of righteousness. Maybe that was the most difficult thing you've ever had to do. But I wonder if you've ever asked yourself this question. Does the Bible believe that change is difficult? Does the Bible say that even... After union with Christ, it's hard to change. If you had to ask God, if you had to tell God to his face, it was really hard to change. Do you think God would be surprised? 
Or do you think God would understand and agree? When I was 16, I know exactly what I would have said. And I would have said, yes, it's hard to change. And I say me at 16 because 16 was when I accepted the gospel and became baptized. I'd heard the gospel and grew up in church um, basically my whole life, but it was only when I was 16 uh, that I accepted the gospel and was baptized. And I could tell you that when I think of the hardest time in my life, it was those four years after I got baptized from 16 to 20, which were my last two years of high school and my, last, and my first two years of college. And it wasn't difficult because of my external circumstances. It wasn't hard because of the events that took place in my life. It was the internal circumstances of my life. It was because I was fighting sin and trying to change on a serious level for the first time. And I felt like I was losing. It felt very, very difficult to grow as a Christian. I felt like I had patterns in my life of sin that I wanted to remove. And I found that it was impossible to change them. And when I did change them, I found very quickly that I was simply replacing them with either other sinful thoughts or sinful patterns. I know I wasn't completely to blame in terms of finding ways to change. I didn't have a lot of good teaching. I didn't know that God was sovereign and I didn't necessarily have a lot of Christian friends to help. But what I did know is that I was responsible for my actions and I was responsible to live a life that God would be glorified in. And I felt that that was too difficult. But I remember after some particularly key Bible studies and some parts of the Bible in which God drew me into his word that I understood for the first time why change was so difficult for me. And the key reason was this. I didn't have a clear enough understanding of the gospel. I didn't have a clear enough understanding of the gospel. And what I mean is that the gospel I knew up until I was 20 years old was simply that God saved me. But after that, somewhere in my subconscious brain, I really didn't believe God was as close to me as he really was. I used to think that it was by feelings and other data that I could observe God was close to me. But what the gospel was guaranteeing wasn't just that Jesus lived for me and he died for me and he rose again for me, but that he was working in me. And he was so committed to working in me that he promised he would work goodness out of me for his glory. And when the attention got off of me and on to God and his gospel and what he promised to do, I remember receiving over a week period of my life a radically different motivation to change. And my life was very, very different from that moment on. And because that was helpful for me, And because I know it was helpful for me because it was biblically true, I want to ask you a similar question. What is the chief motivation for you to change? What is the chief motivation for you to change? And the reason that's important is because you're going to need motivation if you're going to want to change. Because change is, in many of our experiences, a difficult thing. The text we actually just read admits that. Verse 12 says we need to work out something. Work. It takes work to change. It's a key word in our text. 
We're supposed to put effort into the Christian life. And even though it might seem difficult to connect this part of the text from everything that came before, at least one verse from before this is important. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says that when Jesus took on humanity, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. And the key word is obedient. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as Paul thinks about how important it was for Jesus to be obedient to the Father, Paul seems to naturally move on to our obedience and says that it is very important to obey Christ. And if you've been tracking with our study in Philippians, I think you know why it is important. And it's because the Philippians, just as any Christian knows, it's important to represent the gospel well. The gospel shines most beautifully when it's understood, when we can clearly and articulately demonstrate the glory and value of Christ and what he's done for sinners. However, that beauty shines extra brightly when people can see an example of not just what Jesus did, but what he continues to do in his people. And so it's when God's people present the gospel and then demonstrate how much the gospel has radically transformed the way they think about life and then the way they live it. The gospel shines exactly as brightly as God intends it to. That's representing the gospel well. But if you think about that, the next thing you probably think and the next thing the Philippians probably thought is that is very intimidating. The gospel is an incredibly high calling. It's the greatest message in the world. And naturally, we can think we only represent it well if we become the greatest people in the world. And that's intimidating. It is very intimidating to represent the gospel well. And that's probably why Paul talks about what Christians call sanctification, which is putting off sin and putting on righteousness being removed from sin and being more like God. That's probably why Paul talks about sanctification the way he does. And before we get into the details of that, let me explain to you the purpose of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. The purpose is that just because we have a high calling and just because Christ-likeness might seem difficult, the reality is that you should be hopeful when you think of your sanctification. Paul doesn't want you to think that the first thought coming to your head when you think of sanctification should be, this is impossible. He doesn't want you to think that because God doesn't want you to think that. God wants you to be hopeful and he wants you to be thankful. And that's why Paul writes Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. That's why he says other verses along the same lines, like he opened Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, you might remember there he said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In light of that thinking and getting them off of looking at Christ And then the implications of living for Christ, Paul eases them into a conversation about sanctification. He does that in verse 12, where he actually says a lot of things before he tells us to work on something. 
For example, the first thing he says is he calls them my beloved. He reminds them that God and he himself loves them very deeply. Everything he's going to say comes from love. He's not condemning their lack of growth. In fact, he's actually encouraging them. He's encouraging them to keep going. And that's why, secondly, he says, you have always obeyed. He reminds them that after Christ, they have changed, whether they've recognized it or not. And God wants to point it out to them, too, because God hasn't left them stuck in their sanctification. God himself is proud of their efforts and is cheering them on. And finally, Paul encourages them to grow by saying, do this not only in my presence, but also in my absence. The Philippians probably thought, since Paul is in prison, how on earth are we going to grow without Paul? And Paul responds to that by saying, you don't need me to grow. You only need God to grow. You should not rely too heavily on people for you to grow. Yes, it's absolutely true that God provides people. In fact, at the end of chapter 2 in verses 19 to 30, Paul commends people to them, people who have helped them grow. But ultimately what Paul is reminding them of and reminding us of is that when God provides people, he's providing himself through people. God himself is ultimately the person they need and God is ultimately the person who is most committed to their sanctification, not Paul. And therefore, after easing them into this discussion, Paul gets us to this point. He wants to give us God's view of sanctification. God's view of sanctification. We think about salvation, our sanctification rather, the wrong way. And Paul wants to give us God's view because when you see God's view, I think it'll help you get confidence to grow and to grow the way God says we grow. You know, it's hard to find an outline in this text, but I think the way that we can simplify it is this. Paul is going to say three points. He's going to give us three points about God's view of sanctification. The first two are practical. They have to do with you. But the third one is a promise, and it has to do with God to you. And that's ultimately where Paul wants to land the plane. So three points. The first two are practical. They have to do with you. And then the third one is a promise, and it's God's promise to you. So let's get into it. First point is this. Growth starts with salvation. Growth starts with salvation. Paul says in verse 12, work out your salvation, which is another way of saying sanctification starts with salvation. You can't grow unless you understand that you are saved. And Paul says that very deliberately because he could have just said, obey Christ, but he doesn't say that. He could have just said, keep God's commandments, keep Christ's commandments. But he doesn't say it that way either. Because that would make you think about sanctification in a different way. Paul doesn't want them to do things for God before they remember things about what God has done for them. When you remember what God has done for you, then you can do things for God and do them in the right way. Because growing in Christ ultimately doesn't start from doing more things on the outside. It starts from looking inside 
and knowing how your heart came to be redeemed and transformed. A really good book that I commend to you on sanctification is a book called Deeper. It's by a guy named Dane Ortland, And he has a really good theory about sanctification, which is instead of trying to learn more things, broaden your knowledge to grow in Christ, ultimately the best and deepest growth comes from things you already know and then thinking about them more deeply. And at one point in the book, he says this, we will move forward in the Christian life by not moving past the truth that forgave us in the first place. Again, he says, we will move forward in the Christian life by not moving past the truth that forgave us in the first place. So what does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is that only a person who's saved and who understands that Christ was perfectly obedient. And that's how I'm right before God. Only that person can grow to be like Christ. Only a person who understands grace can say, I want to say no to this sin. I want this fruit to shine out of me. I want to be holy in this area of my life. It's a very similar argument that John made in 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, when John said, if you know that Christ is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That key word is born. Living for Christ only starts when you've been born again in Christ. And he's really getting at something profound here because the reality is one of the reasons it can be so hard to grow is if we don't know if we're a Christian or not. And that's something that most teenagers, and I find especially teenagers who grew up in the church, really struggle with. How do I know that I'm saved? But the reality is that it becomes even harder to figure out if you're saved if the only evidence you feel assured in is your godliness. So often we know Christians should do good things, but then we look at our good things for the ultimate confirmation if we are in Christ or not. But what happens when you start there is that you think that you're only saved or that you get salvation if you earn salvation, if you clean up your behavior. I even read a story this week about a man who struggles with that. He was a Jewish man who went to a pastor who knew he needed clarification from his religious roots about how it is that we're saved and why Christ saved us. But he also came to get counsel because he was a doctor and he specialized in abortions. And so when he came to the pastor, he had a very guilty conscience for the things that he had done. So that pastor pointed him to the Bible, pointed him to Christ, explained Jesus' grace to him, and then told him to go read the Gospel of John. And that man came back having read the Gospel of John without notes, without commentary, without sermons, without anything. And he understood that Jesus saved him by grace, that he did nothing to earn his salvation. Christ did everything for him instead. And the very first thing he said after explaining that to the pastor and the pastor asks him, what are you going to do now that you're saved? He's going to say this. As soon as I clean up my life, I'm going to become a Christian. Which is the exact opposite thing you're supposed to say. Because the whole point about grace is that you understand Christ loves you when you were a sinner. And as you continue to struggle with sin. Again, this is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to grow. 
is because a lot of our growth ultimately comes from trying to earn salvation rather than resting in salvation. If we don't know gospel grace, then we'll think we need to change in order to earn God's love. But if you start by resting in gospel grace, then you can actually change and change with confidence because you know that God's love isn't on the line. Maybe you could think about it this way. Imagine you got a really important job and that job required you to do some very important things for the government. And you liked the pay, you know, it was a good job, a steady job, but you were also intimidated by the job because it was important. You knew you were gonna do some things that would be very helpful for people and very helpful for the country, but you struggled to do it well. And you were intimidated because you knew it was important. You could imagine one kind of boss who came to you and wanted to motivate you by constantly yelling at you and telling you that you're terrible at this. And every day he's threatening to fire you. He's saying things like, I could find someone better than you or you're one step away from being unemployed. You could have that kind of boss. And you can think about how motivated you would become working for that boss, which is not very motivated. Or you could have a different boss. A boss who might say, listen, we're doing an important thing, but we're doing it together. We need to help a lot of people, but we love you. We're gonna show you how to do this. We're gonna help you do it better and better. And we're gonna provide everything you need. And even if you don't grow as much as you think you should, and you don't do as good at this job as you think you should, we're not gonna fire you ever because we love you that's our god that's our god when you think about the importance of the gospel and representing it well that is god's attitude towards people he has saved no matter how important representing the gospel is no matter how much grace people need to say working out in our lives and changing our behavior god's grace needs to be louder than your failures That's what Paul's trying to remind you of. And as you grow, that's going to be a key foundational point for you to grow. You need to allow the reminder of Christ's never-ending grace to be the ultimate motivation for you to continue growing. That's point number one. But Paul actually adds something to that point, which is point number two, which is this. Growing means taking God seriously. Growing means taking God seriously. To recall the last illustration, obviously, just because Christ is never going to fire you from the job he's given you, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't take your assignment lightly. We have been given an important job. I think Paul's thinking about that when he says that we're to work out our salvation, but to do it with fear and trembling. Why does Paul add with fear and trembling? And I think it's to remind us that a holy God requires holiness in his people. He requires holiness in his people. Obedience is not optional. Obedience is not optional. You can't decide to do it or not. Citizens of God's kingdoms willfully and determinately work out 
the commands and decrees of the king. One way Paul says this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, where Paul says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When Christ died for us, he bought us. He owns us. He's our Lord. He's our master. And maybe that's why the last thing that Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, is to talk about the lordship and the exaltation of Christ. Which says, Christ was highly exalted. His name is above every name, every knee, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If Christ proved that he is the rightful king over the whole universe, we should be proving how much he deserves his kingship by following his laws. People who take Christ seriously take growing in Christ seriously. We think so much about our futures and what we're anxious about and our pleasures, what we want. And all of those things are ways that we take ourselves and our plans much more seriously than God's plans. But when Paul says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he's getting at a very essential point in sanctification, which is this. We struggle the most to grow when we don't take God seriously. There is a one-to-one correlation between taking God seriously and growing. And there's a one-to-one correlation between ignoring God and failing to grow. It's really, in one sense, that simple. We get focused on us and we forget about him. And then even the truth we do know, we reinterpret to be about us. And that comes with problems. It comes with a lack of assurance. It comes with a guilty conscience that we can't cleanse. And it especially hinders ministry which Paul has been talking about in Philippians, should be our joy and our goal. But what God does something when he reminds us of his holiness, he reminds us that God does hate sin. In the early Psalms, it says that God is angry at the wicked every day. And thoughts like that should remind us that when we sin, we put ourselves willingly in one way or another on a path that ultimately leads to destruction. And it's God's holiness that actually reminds us to get off of that path, to look at God's attention and to get in the right direction again. But again, I I know what you're probably thinking, or at least what some of you might be thinking, which is that does not sound encouraging. That doesn't sound like something you'd say when you're trying to encourage people to grow. That sounds more intimidating. That sounds like adding intimidation to an already very intimidated people. And I think that's because we think about obedience to God and his holiness in the wrong way. I was listening to a podcast this week, and the people on the podcast were talking about Israel. And they were talking about why Israel had all of these laws. Some of them make sense. Don't steal from your neighbor. Some of them don't make sense. Don't cook a baby goat in its mother's milk. It's like, I will never be tempted to do that. Um, And the question most people have, especially people who don't know the Bible very well, is, Why did all of these things exist? It was a very insightful answer from one of the podcast speakers who said this, the limits of God's law humanize us. Did you hear that? The limits of God's law 
humanize us. They humanized God's people in a world that had a very low view of life. God is both distinguishing his people and humanizing his people. Reminding us that God has designed life to work only when God is God and we're not pretending to be. These laws put us in the healthiest way possible into our place where we now, and here's the key word, flourish. Where we now flourish under the wisdom of God. When your parents tell you, don't run into traffic, that's helping you flourish by not dying. And God's laws, even without the ceremonial law that we no longer live with, all ultimately go to the same thing. Submitting to God blesses your life. God's laws are not to ruin your life. They are to make your life better. And the reason we sin is because when we sin, we don't believe that. Ask yourself this question. Do you think more about flourishing by ignoring God and enjoying sin than by submitting to God? Because when you sin and when I sin, that's what we're thinking. I'm going to get more out of life by denying the one who created all life. And that's wrong. That's both illogical and insane. And that's why God reminds us of his holiness, because it's a protection. It's a spiritual protection to remember that life is not about me and my life gets worse when I make it about me. But it's in a reminder that we have a holy God of whom we can approach freely in Christ and yet with fear and trembling that God actually paves a way to what the book of Philippians is actually about, which is joy. It's only in recognizing the seriousness of God they actually live a life of joy. So Paul already in verse 12 has given us two practical principles. Number one, sanctification starts with salvation. Growth starts with salvation. And number two, growth comes from taking God seriously. But both of those points are, in a sense, trying to lead us to the third point that Paul wants to land the plane on in verse 13. And the third point is this. Growth is inevitable with God. Growth is inevitable with God. Paul reminds us that no matter how much effort you're putting into your growth, there's one person putting in much more effort than you, and that's God. Because Paul says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you. This is actually something Paul is referring back to from Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 11, where in Paul's opening paragraph, he ends it with a prayer, asking God for the Philippians to grow. And then immediately at the end of that, he reminds them, even in the midst of his own prayer, that he's confident that they can grow. He's confident that God will fulfill this prayer. Why? Because verse 11, it comes through Christ. It comes through Christ. Christ has saved people and promised to grow them. And Paul, to make this point even bigger here, doesn't say Christ works in you. He says God, which is either God the Father or what I'm more prone to think, the whole Trinity. It is God entire 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is pro your growth. And you should think about how amazing that is. And you should think about whether you believe that. God has done everything necessary for your salvation. Do you also believe he's done everything necessary for you to grow as well? I think a lot of people, including myself, get distracted by something else in this verse, which is who's doing what? That's kind of the question everybody asks with this verse. They ask the question, well, it says that I have to work on something, but that God's working in me. So is it me putting an effort or is it God putting an effort? Is it my responsibility or is it God being sovereign? And the answer is yes. Both things are in fact happening, but it's not a mathematical equation in the way we want it to be. Yes, Paul obviously in his first practical points has told you, you must put in effort. You must cognitively decide day by day to live for Christ. But ultimately, it's God's power. It's through his union. It's through his salvation. It's through the revelation of his holy character that you actually produce results. Your fruit comes by the spirit. Your growth comes from Christ. And your eventual day of being pure and blameless at the day of Christ is because God brought you to that day. And listen, Paul knows he's putting two things beside each other. He didn't look down and say, oh no, I contradicted myself. Paul intentionally put those ideas beside themselves and it was not to confuse your theology. It was to encourage you and fix your theology if it's wrong. Paul's trying to emphasize how powerful and encouraging you should be when you think about God transforming you. That's why Paul describes God's power as both to will and to work. Will and work. Will is the desire to grow and the desire to obey God. And work is the ability to do it. And so when God says he's willing and working in you, it means God's not just changing your behavior. It means when God sets about to change you, he changes your desires, your comforts, your worries, your anxieties, your struggles, and your hope. Which is another way to say God's transformation is so powerful, it changes your very soul. It changes your very nature. I like how one commentator translated this verse. He said, you can approach this awesome task of growth with confidence because God himself is the one who makes it possible by producing in your lives both the will to work and the working itself and all for the sake of his gracious will. That's a good translation. But I also like the way Paul says the same thing in another book. A book we've covered before, Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, where Paul says this, We proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. This is everything he does. And then he immediately says this, struggling with all his energy, struggling with all the energy God gives me. And that's the same word he actually uses here. God says he works in you. It means the energy of almighty God is powerfully working within you. What God is really saying through Paul is that God has called you to a high calling 
And he's promised to fulfill it in you. He's promised to fulfill the calling he's called you to. And there's another reason why this is so important to understand, which is because if we knew how powerful our sin nature was, if we knew how powerful the devil and his demons were, and if we knew how many temptations would overcome us, we would know how much we need God. We would know sincerely how dependent we are on God's grace, not just for salvation, but for growth. This, re- this uh, week I was watching a movie. I watch a lot of movies, a lot less than I did before. And I watched a black and white Western movie made in 1961 uh, called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And I'm going to spoil it, and I'm not worried, because it's from 1961, and you will probably never watch it. Uh, it's a Western, which means it starts inevitably um, with the hero who's coming into town, and he's a lawyer. And he comes into town, he wants to change uh, the town through establishing law and order. Uh, but the biggest thing in the way is this gang that's taken over the town. And this gang is led by an outlaw whose name, as the title suggests, is Liberty Valance. And he intimidates people in town and he controls it with fear. And he actually almost kills a number of people in town to keep his control. In fact, when the lawyer comes to town, uh, the very first thing that happens is he gets attacked by this gang and he's almost beaten to death. And inevitably, because it's a Western, you know where everything is going. It's leading to a duel. It's leading to uh, the main character, the lawyer, and the outlaw gang leader, Liberty Valance. And they're going to face off in the middle of town. And you know they're going to draw their pistols on each other. And it is very unexciting. And the reason it's not very exciting is because one of them's a lawyer who theoretically are not good at shooting people. And the other person is very good at shooting people. And he proves that very, very quickly by shooting the gun out of his hand and then shooting the gun when he tries to grab it from the ground and even shooting his gun hand. So the man who's the lawyer is basically in an impossible situation to win the fight. And then at the last moment where Liberty Valance picks up his gun and he says, I'm going to shoot you between the eyes. The lawyer raises his hand, which is not his shooting hand, randomly fires the gun and happens to kill Liberty Valance. And it's insane. From a movie from 1961, I was like, what? And he awkwardly stumbles away, absolutely amazed at what happens. And the rest of the movie works out really well. He starts establishing law and order. They send representatives to a Congress that's going to like fix all these things for the town. And it's awesome. And then at the end of the movie, there's a twist. And this is the twist. And you might have guessed it. The lawyer was not the one who shot Liberty Valance. There's a reason it seemed so surprising. And it's because it didn't happen. It turns out there was a friend of his who was a cowboy in town. And that cowboy is the only person in the whole town who's a better shot than Liberty Valance. And it turns out that when this duel was going on, he was hiding in the shadows with a gun, waiting for the exact right moment. And it was he who picked up his rifle and shot Liberty Valance. He was protecting him the whole time. And it was through his work that the lawyer's way was paved to do all of these things for the townspeople. 
Now listen, you might get confused with the illustration because you might think, is Clifton condoning murder? I'm not condoning murder. There's lots of moral questions that this illustration is not for the purpose of getting into. But there is one reason that I tell you that story, which is this. When that lawyer learned the truth, he should have realized how hopeless it was that he would ever win that duel. And he should have realized that there was no way he was going to win unless somebody helped him win. And basically, do enough work that it wasn't him at all, was it? And there's something about that that you need to know in your sanctification, because you are going to put in effort. You are going to work. But when you think about the powers of evil and darkness against you, you need to know you can't do it. But God can. And throughout all of the experiences of victory that you are going to have and all the effort that you are putting into your growth, ultimately, your hope can't be in, how can I face up to this? You can face up to it because God is working in you. You can face up to it because God has promised that according to 1 John 4, 4 and many, many other places in the Bible, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Some of you have struggles personally and you have no idea how you're going to break them. Some of you have friends who are struggling with sin, maybe the sin of unbelief, and you have no idea how you are going to convince them of the gospel. Well, guess what? It's not you. You'd be surprised at what God wants you to witness as he works through you, but ultimately through his own power to both save people and sanctify you including you. There's one other reason why this is so important to know, that your sanctification is ultimately on God's power, not yours, which is this. It's going to keep you humble. It's going to keep you humble. Do you remember the point of everything that we covered in verse 1 to 11? We need to be humble people. There's nothing more humbling than knowing God is ultimately at work in changing me and making me more like him. I listened to a sermon by John Piper this week, and he asked a really good question. He asked the question, why does God sanctify us slowly? Ultimately, we know one day God is going to come, and he's going to completely change us and make us perfect and remove all sin. That's called glorification. But I don't know if you've ever asked this question. It's a good question. Why doesn't God just do that instantaneously? Why did he just immediately come and glorify me right now so I can live a life without sin and represent him perfectly? Why doesn't he do it that way? I think he has a really good answer to that question. He says the reason that's the plan is because God is going to get some glory in your life. If he didn't do it this way, you'd get uppity about it. You'd think you had it made. You'd start to think that your holiness was coming from you. But the fact that you run out of gas every day puts you in the station. God has his reasons for why he sanctifies us slowly so that we fill up every day at his pump lest we forget where the gas comes from. It's a really, really, really important thing. Not only that you grow in Christ, but that you're humbled by your growth in Christ because it's not that God worked in you, past tense. It's that God works in you present tense. And that's ultimately how you see his good pleasure. 
Because when you're renewed day by day, you're going to get 10,000 reasons one day to glorify Christ for eternity. We started by asking this question, is growing as a Christian difficult? And Paul wants to give us a view from God's perspective of our sanctification that I think answers that question. Is growing as a Christian difficult? In a sense, yes, it is difficult. But God guarantees growth and he expects us to rely on him as we grow. God guarantees growth and he expects us to rely on him as we grow. Because one of the greatest lies that you can tell yourself in your growth in Christ is that God is against you. We can think way too easily that we're on our own, that we have to earn God's grace and favor, and that God is displeased and disappointed with us when we fall back into sin. We think of that saying that sometimes people say, that God only helps those who help themselves. And we think I haven't been helping myself very much lately, so maybe God's not going to help me either. And the reality is that God doesn't expect you to grow on your own. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. God doesn't expect us to grow on our own. And therefore, when you think about your sanctification, when you think about the growth of those you love, the first thing you think should not be depression. The first thing you think should not be, this is impossible. The first thing you should think is, I'm grateful. Because I know by God's efforts and his promises, he will not fail to grant me growth. We need God's salvation We need the revelation of his holy character and we need his grace to empower us daily. And God promises to provide all of it so that even though you might not be a perfect representative, God's going to make you a better representative than you realize. So let's pray. Father, you are good and you do good always. And we thank you for the clarity of your word. And we thank you that no matter what is in the way, our sin or my squeaky voice, that you will do what you have promised to do through your word. Father, thank you for it. We pray that we would believe it. We want to understand more and more that your word still applies to us, but we can't do that unless you work in our hearts. Father, for those of us who do not know you, Please help us to know you, to know your gracious character, that you don't give up on us when we fail. Rather, you point us to our failures, and then you point us to yourself, expecting that we will turn to you for help. And Father, for those of us who do know you, but so often fall into these patterns of sin in which we forget who you are, clarify our minds, clarify our hearts, give us great contentment knowing that growth is a process and that you might reveal more and more of your holiness and your love so that we might rest in you both to be saved and to grow. Father, we're confident you can do these things because you have promised and your promises always stand true.
So we thank you and praise you and pray all these things in your name. Amen.